Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 20th, 2021. Uh, we have uh, my mother's 96th birthday coming up. In just a June few days. 25th. Yeah. It's impressive. So happy birthday, Vivian. Yes. And uh, we just uh, what? passed oh. uh, Juneteenth, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, Father's Day. Let's start with and Father's Day. Day. Today's Father's Day. Oh, happy Father's Day. You know, let's not overlook that. It's, uh, that's a big event. Big event. I know the big celebration will be later, so we're, we're keeping our powder dry. Yeah, we have members of the family who are experiencing their very first Father's Day. Right. And I'm a grizzled veteran in that connection. So Father's Day, at least uh, to my mind, to some degree, is linked up with baseball. There's always a big baseball game on Father's Day, Sunday Father's Day, the biggest being in 1964, the first Father's Day in Shea Stadium, when Jim Bunning threw the first perfect game in like, I don't know, 50, 60 years and beat the Mets 6 nothing. And I remember watching that with my father on a black and white television and my grandfather, who had a less than zero interest in baseball, <laughs> uh, but somehow was coaxed into standing in front of the TV for 10 seconds. And it was a huge event. Um but what you'll remember better, Tamsin, or maybe you won't remember happily, is a drive that we had back from um, Jones Beach. We'd been visiting my parents. We went to Jones Beach, as we sometimes did. And we got so this in, was a Father's Day? Was so a we Father's drove Day. out to celebrate Father's Day with your parents. Right. And we went to the beach. And, and then we turned around to go home. We got into the car, and the radio says the Mets have just done a big trade. See, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> They've traded Lenny Dykstra for Juan... Manuel, who is a player on the Philadelphia Phillies. And you had talk radio, or we had talk radio, for the next two and a half hours, which must have seemed like two and a half weeks for you, about this trade. Most people calling in, saying what a terrible trade it was. And it turns out the callers were right. It was a terrible trade. Uh, Lenny Dystra was a uh, productive member of the Mets. Juan Manuel was terrible for the Mets, and the Mets' fortunes went downhill. Um uh, we learned later uh, that uh, Lenny Dykstra was a mixed bag. He was kind of an alcoholic, honestly, and there are probably reasons they traded him. But in any event, I always feel bad when I realize that, well, I, I felt bad at the time that you would have suffered listening to that, but I guess because it was Father's Day, you let me listen to it. You didn't feel bad. I'm <laughs> sure you, I'm sure we were in tremendous traffic. Oh, we were. Going down the Belt Parkway yeah, and, and the Veranzano right. at the end of a, a beach Sunday night. Right. Um, so, uh, you had some entertainment at least. <laughs> entertainment, although I was, and, uh, I was riled about the trade. I was wrangling the children. <laughs> as, as, uh, one does. So, uh, all right. So that's my Father's Day memory here, but you have a Father's Day memory which links us to Juneteenth, really. Well, I don't know. I have many, uh, memories of my father and I will repeat, uh, as I often do, that, uh, the main lesson he taught me. Yeah was no good deed goes unpunished. That sounds like your father. It, He's that it kind does. Of sunny disposition. But it, it can be it can be very true. Yeah. And uh, and I always chuckle when I think about that and I don't take it too seriously. Good. I don't avoid good deeds good. because I good. might get punished. Good. He did. But uh, <laughs> it's funny how often that happens. <laughs> oh, all right. And uh, anyway, um, one of the uh, uh, fun things about uh, Relating to my father was that uh, recently I reconnected with my father's cousin, 
Gordon Granger, which was great fun, partly because Gordon is a delightful person, but also because he had great stories about my father mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you grow up with a certain vision of your parents and it's from the perspective of a kid yeah. and, uh, you know, your parents get older and, uh, you know, you just had this, I think, very limited sort of uh, um, caricature mm-hmm. of uh, your parents as people. And uh, it was wonderful to have Gordon's stories, which, you know, told about my father from a rather different perspective. And I love those stories. And, the, you know, that a great uh, treasure to me um, to have heard some of those stories. Well, Gordon Granger, my father's cousin, was named after General Gordon Granger, who was... Uh, who is uh, mostly famous. He, he actually had a great uh, career as a general, especially in uh, the Civil the War. Union general. Yeah, Union general. And uh, But he's most remembered for having uh, read uh, the General Order Number 3 when he was assigned uh, as, you know, with the, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, the regiment. The regiment in uh, Texas, Galveston, Texas, right. it was his job to read this general order informing the residents and enforcing the uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, emancipation He's the, he's the active figure in the Juneteenth celebration. He's the general who led the uh, regiment out there and announced that slavery was over. Right. So right. we delight in being related to him. We are indeed related to him, uh, uh, you know. Um, yeah, Granger, right. Well, Granger. Uh, More than that. The <laughs> first Granger to come from England yeah. uh, was Lancelot Granger, right. if well, you can believe it. We don't want to hear all no, that. No, no, no. Well, anyway, history. I'm yeah. not going to tell the whole history, but because most of it sounds like it can't possibly be yeah. true. This is where I am uh, on that. But, yeah. and, and, but anyway, he had a passel of kids. Yeah. All right. Our family is descended from his Second son, Thomas, yeah. Gordon Granger's family uh, came down from uh, the third son, George. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but uh, anyway, and apparently throughout the family, there are a ton of Gordon Grangers. It was a popular, popular well, name. Yeah, I did. But we celebrate being related to him. Now, he's not that important. I don't know about that. I, I just, he's the messenger. The message is what's no, important. No, 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 no. Don't, uh, look, I don't know. We don't have to re- Can I also important. say this? Yeah. He was a very good general. Yeah. But not not the brightest light All right, let's forget in the about shed. No one... He went to uh, West Point. Yeah. He was 35 yeah. in a class of 41. He All graduated right. number 35. Yeah. All right. Okay. But uh, so maybe I think, maybe he lacks some book smart. I thought Grant was last in his class, if I recall correctly. That was yeah, so it doesn't. Uh, but but here's here's the thing. What? Okay, if you look up Juneteenth, and one of the first articles you pick up, or it's a news clip about a mural that was painted in Galveston, which is the uh, venue that's the focal point of, of Juneteenth, because that's where the uh, proclamation was read, and it's a mural on a huge wall in Galveston, Texas, that was painted over the last year or so. And it has three or four scenes. They're in circles. And the biggest scene is uh, the picture of painting of Gordon Granger 
with the proclamation. I mean, it's and, not and like he's a hidden soldiers, figure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's a, he's a key figure right, in this. So, Don't walk away from that. Um, Gordon's uh, dear wife, Marilyn, yeah. was uh, worried that no one ever mentions Gordon oh, Granger. So I, I would just urge uh, her kids, yeah. um, including Lynn, to you know Google the Galveston mural, Juneteenth mural, right. and uh, she can see a depiction yeah. of Gordon uh, Granger, Gordon well, Granger like lar- larger than life. Oh, huge. But very much like the uh, old photographs yeah. of him, the guy with a big forehead yeah. and uh, big Mutton bushy beard. beard. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So happy Juneteenth. Uh, we celebrate yeah. that liberation. All right. And on Father's Day, you're going to come back with a story later about how men's bodies change with fatherhood. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But until we get to that. Oh, and just so you know, it's, yeah. it's not just about the dad bod thing. Uh, well, it okay. is what it is. I'm sure you and I will get past it. The uh, playoffs. Let's uh, talk about fun. Talk about, yes, uh, important developments in this time of year. Now, let me just say this. We had the hockey and the um, basketball playoffs, and the Nets got knocked out yesterday uh, in a very close game. And it was interesting watching the Net game and the uh, uh, Islanders game kind of simultaneously uh, because of the way those teams play and the way those games ended uh, almost simultaneously. In the uh, basketball game, the Nets uh, were trying to play through one player, Kevin Durant. They've had other injuries. And they are playing, you know, people always say we play basketball the right way. The Nets play basketball the wrong way, 100% Mm -hmm. the wrong way. They play like a private school like Lawrenceville who has a PG uh, postgraduate player who is 10 times better than everybody else in the team. And all they do on offense, I'm exaggerating, they try to give them the ball and they stand aside. Now that's Mm. a little bit of exaggeration, but But they have three PGs? No, because two of them are hurt. Oh, okay. They had three PGs. And that would be James Harden and Kyrie Irving. Irving's out completely. Harden's playing with a a grade two strain hamstring and is very compromised. And it's give the ball to Kevin Durant. And it's amazing that they almost won anyway, because what happened was with uh, Durant took a shot with literally one second left, completely covered, jumps from far away and takes this crazy shot when the team is down by two. When it goes in, you say, my God, they won the game. And it turns out his toe was on the three-point line. So it was a two-point shot, Uh. not a three-point shot. Or as Charles Barkley said later, he's a size 16. If he was a size 15 and a half, they win the game. <laughs> and they went to overtime. They lost almost simultaneously. Let me tell you what's happening in the Islanders. The Islanders are the exact opposite of the Nets. They have no stars. There's no PGs. And they just grind it out, grind it out. They're playing a more talented team called the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, they're down 2-1 in the series. But in this game, they take a three-goal lead, 3-0. And they're playing in, in Uniondale. So the home crowd's going crazy. But it becomes 3-1 and then 3-2. And then Tampa Bay Lightning is peppering them like crazy in the last minute. And with four, literally four seconds to go, player named Ryan McDonough, who used to play for the Rangers as a super player, does an amazing play. He's trying to score and tie the game. He comes on the Islanders goalie, uh, Varlamov, and instead of taking the standard approach, he does a reverse spin, which so fakes out the Islanders goalie that he is two feet or three feet away from the goal to the right side. He goes for it completely. And now <laughs> McDonough has a, practically an empty net, and he goes to flick the puck in, 
And uh, Ryan, Ryan Pollock, a defenseman for the Islanders, comes diving across and makes a glove save. A defenseman. A defenseman. Not a goalie. On an empty net. And this is 4-3-2-1. Islanders win the game and they tie. And you should go look at that play on YouTube. It's the most amazing hockey play <laughs> you will ever see. And if the Islanders, I don't think they're going to win the Stanley Cup, but if they do, that's the because play of Islanders play. history. And uh, I mean, so much so that the, even the, the coach of the other team said, look, my own personal view is the offensive play by McDonough was better than the defensive play, but they're two of the most amazing plays I've ever seen in hockey. So that happened almost at the same time. It's pretty darn exciting. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was, you know, we've talked a little bit about what people watch. And uh, By the way, we watched Lupin. We watched Lupin starting the second season. What do you think? What do you think? I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, you know, it's okay. I mean, I, I thought it was a little old-fashioned almost yesterday. It was a little uh-huh. bit like, you know, tying the uh, victim on the train tracks, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but you know, I like it. It's on Netflix. Uh, and there was an article in the uh, Times about... Uh, Nielsen, uh, the rating company, who used to people used to quote their ratings like they meant quite a bit because they were just doing network television it was easy to do, and they've had a terrible time trying to uh, get ratings for streaming shows and comparing those for cable and over-the-air television, and they apparently have cracked that nut, or at least to the satisfaction of someone like Netflix, who was always dismissive of, of the attempts by uh, Nielsen to do this, and there are some very interesting findings. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to guess unless you'd like to as no. to what the percentage is. But the Nielsen reports that 64% of the time American viewers use their television sets is spent watching network and cable TV. Oh, really? 64%. Really? Still 64%? <laughs> Streaming services is 26%. And 9% are using their TV screens for video games or, or something else, right? Mm-hmm. So that's quite... A margin. And, uh, you know, you would have thought everybody's streaming, but they're not. Now, the streaming share is increasing rapidly. Uh, this is just television sets. Your television sets. Because yes. people right. stream right. You're other right. places. They're not picking up the computer stuff. And it's just old people no, who that's not are using the no, TV no, no, for... No, 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 no. There are a lot using of people, the TV for... There's a lot of people who cut the cord, but they're using their TV sets. In other words, they don't have a cable box. Uh, they right. don't have anybody else. But it's not else. that many people. It's 26%. Yeah. Well, it's not right. That's exactly right. But that's up from 20% last year and 14% the year before. Mm-hmm. So it's creeping up. And also in terms of what they're streaming, the leaders are Netflix and YouTube. Each of them capture 6% of total TV time. They're the mm-hmm. leaders. Uh, Hulu, 3%. Amazon, 2%. And Disney Plus, 1%. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, they say it's trending the way you'd expect it to be trending. But, um, you know, old-fashioned TV is still sort of hanging on. So, there you go. And, of course, when I'm watching these hockey and basketball, it's on regular TV. That's not streaming. Sports is the answer for a lot of this. Okay. All, all right. right. Okay. Good. Take Good it away. to know. I'll be, I'll be interested in what they learned from all this, aside from just the... Data percentages. Yeah. Okay. Like how you know what shows. Oh well, they look. They'll, they'll get more refined findings to be sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, article about the author Laurie Colwin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Now, Laurie Colwin. Uh, 
I really just knew about her as a food writer. Right. She has uh, two books right. that I uh, love. And uh, one is Home Cooking, and the other uh, was called More Home Cooking. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she passed away at a young age. Uh, she died in her sleep at age 48 mm-hmm. of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, More Home Cooking was actually published uh, posthumously. Uh, so, right. uh, yeah. Did you uh, know that? No, I didn't know, I didn't know a darn thing about her. I picked up the books because I like food writing. You uh-huh. know, I'm an MFK Fisher right. fan and so on. And I think I read these books in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. all right? And uh, I had no idea who she was or that she had passed away. And, of course, it was, uh, you know, I, I literally remember finding out that she was already um, deceased. Mm-hmm. And and tears came to my eyes. Mm-hmm. It was just uh, such a loss. She her Those books are wonderful, and people say they're still fun to read there's they still resonate um they're uh excellent uh books uh to read and um let me just say that uh you know what uh uh what can i do to give an impression of her they talk about her books as almost somewhere between a, a writer and uh an, an early uh, blogger uh kind of person well most of the things they're talking about are fiction I mean, right, yeah, and and that I can't talk about. All right, but I just, I, and just when clear. I read about, uh, you know, uh, I think I even read one or two of her books. They didn't resonate. Is that right for me? Yeah. Okay, because that uh, is... but to have her, it's like having someone talk to you personally mm-hmm. about what they're cooking. She was, you know, one of those classic people living in, uh, you know, a postage stamp size apartment in Greenwich Village. Right. You know, somehow, you know, throwing wonderful dinner parties uh, on a teensy tiny stove kind of thing she was um it, her heroes were like edna lewis uh marcella hazan jane grigson elizabeth david um sort of simple classic cooking from a variety of sources she was kind of the anti martha stewart she was not about perfection mm-hmm. and she did not really approve of difficult inhospitable, challenging, overly fancy cooking. And all of this resonated with me. Uh, I think a a fan of hers uh, is Deb Perlman of uh, Smitten Kitchen, and, uh, you know, uh, who describes her as so relatable and reliable. And, you know, seems like these books were written five minutes ago. So I haven't read them lately, but uh, I I think I'm going to... Uh, go well, back well, listen, I remember... and take another look because it, it was just like having, you know, it was it's a friendly conversation about food with terrific ideas. She was ahead of her time yeah. in, in a bunch of ingredients that we take for granted now. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the, but the that, first look, book was written in 83 and she was talking about Broccoli Rob and we're still looking at Broccoli Rob like we just found it kind but, of thing. It's just interesting to me because I, I actually think I brought the article to your attention. Maybe you'd seen it. I guess you had seen it. Yes. Uh, but the article is about her fiction, and uh, the person who's writing the article says how much that she loves the fiction, even though there's nothing in the article that convinces you that you'd like to read it, but but there is that positive review. I mean, the examples that are provided are not particularly compelling, but uh, there she wrote several novels, and that the author uh, of the review, or the author of the article, loves. 
So there's right. that part of her too. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should give her fiction another chance too. But it's come to they, the way she's described is that it's dated, but she still says it's incredibly funny or something like that. So I, I still say it's you know, the 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 food writing has got to be more fun because it's like okay. you know, being with her as a friend, as a person, you know, okay. etc. It's an engagement thing, I think. All right. So here's an article in the Times that's called, uh, headline is, It's Not the Car They Detest, It's the Showroom. And what the article is about uh, is that there has now been a discernible shift to online purchases of cars. Uh, and why is that? They say it's focused, the shift has been led by millennials. Uh, and uh, the reason, they say, is not because you get a better deal or it's cheaper to buy cars online, but because millennials and others dread the showroom, dread the car showroom, which they describe as averaging five hours, haggling, paperwork, and high-pressure pitches for add-on products like wheel and tire insurance. They have a quote here from Will Clark, a recent car shopper. He says, I dislike the car dealer rigmarole of, quote, let me go talk to my manager, end of quote, <laughs> and let's go over to the finance department. Okay? And you're laughing, and I'm laughing internally, because that's exactly It's so true. And it's so dealership. awful. And, you, and every time we buy a car, we think, okay, we can just, we know what exactly what we want. Right. We know exactly what we right. will pay. We can run in and run out. Yeah. And we are there. I mean, it was really one of the cars recently. The it was torture. Yeah, and we it kept saying, torture. I'm not buying any of your warranty products. I'm not buying any of your insurance. They smile and they give you all the pitches anyway. And remember, or maybe it was the last car, uh, which is also a Honda type dealership. And they were saying to me, you know something, you really should get the warranty. You've got, you know, they put so much computer stuff in here uh, that your if your computer stuff breaks down, the car is inoperable and it costs three thousand to five thousand dollars to fix. So what are you going to do if it breaks down the first year? I said if this car breaks down like that in the first year. That will, you know, the, the idea that I don't have a warranty will be the least of your problems. And I'm coming right back here and said, how, why did you sell me this piece of crap? I'm not buying a warranty, you know, on the theory that otherwise, you know, I have to expect the car to break down. But so, they, they, they trap you there. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing the amount of time. Uh, the time we had already done more. anything. We'd even written the check yeah. and we were stuck you in that get office. Out. You couldn't get out. They, just a few, I just have to check a few other things. Blah, right. blah, 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 just, just, blah, blah. Right. And we were sitting there, sitting there. Sitting. It's insanity. It's the, it's the worst thing. I yeah. think the only time we didn't, the, the quickest, uh, our quickest trips have been buying Subarus. Right. You know, they're, they're just, they're they're no nonsense. Well, we, this I is do the remember, car, this is the we price. We walk at the Subaru, this was a couple of cars ago. We walked in and they have the Subaru Alpix sitting there. And he said, well, Richard, looking at the Subaru, they, he looks at the car, he says, okay, that's our popular model. It's the Outback. It costs $23,800. That's what everybody buys. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, doesn't come with too many options. There's not a lot to talk about. Uh, yeah, well, that's not usually the experience. So it turns out that everyone's annoyed about this also. And uh, number one, car purchases are increasingly uh, driven by millennials, which is not a big surprise. Uh, who, who They've been trying not to have cars. But now, but they, now, now they need cars. They need they're cars. giving in. They have to give in. They they're living cars. out in the suburbs, they're, working remotely. Yeah, there are no, no subways in Peoria. So uh, 
Uh, millennials account for 32% of total new car sales. That's the largest percentage of any uh, demographic group. Uh, and they are twice as likely, whatever that statistic means, as boomers to shop for a vehicle online. And uh, so now you're getting these online services. What's interesting is it's a little complicated. It's not just a matter of um, these people like cars.com. It's not like they're in a completely different universe and you're just dealing with cars.com. What cars.com is doing is they're selling the uh, car buying services and software platforms to the dealers. So the dealers are using cars.com to sell online. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do with what I'll call protective laws about protecting dealers and so on. So they're protective of competition. Nonetheless, it's, like, it's easier than uh, it's easier, yes, you being can, in the dealership. Yes, and you can have a situation. And, and frankly, it's almost easier for a used car than a new car. Why? Because the laws I just mentioned only apply to new cars, not to used cars. So you don't have these kind of anti-competitive protective laws for used cars. And therefore, you have a more wide open marketplace. So in any event, your next car, uh, you're not going to be alone if you do it online. Uh, and frankly, instead of the notion of doing the test drive, the way they do it online, so you take the car, drive it for seven days or 10 days. If you don't like it, you can return it. So that may be the way to go. And, you know, they, they talk about... Yeah, but still, if you're trying to decide between three or four cars or something... Yeah, look, I'm not saying the dealer is useless, but there's a lot wrong with it. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay. So, um... Museum update. Museum update. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Um... Right. This, uh... This week's museum update is about the Shaker Museum. Yes. And the Shaker Museum is uh, ha having a massive transformation uh, that's costing $18 million. The museum won't open until 2023. Where is this? Chatham, New York. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Near um, the stronghold of uh, Shaker... Um, the Shaker World near uh, New Lebanon, okay. New York, uh, that, that area. Okay, yeah. um, so it's all it's all based on a, a humongous collection um, of uh, a man named John Stanton Williams, who had like eighteen thousand objects, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, and it's been added to since then. So the Shakers, right? You know, they were a uh, kind of a religious sect. Mm -hmm. And uh, they um, actually uh, petered out because one of the uh, tenets of their beliefs was celibacy. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, but they are a fascinating group, and they people were talking about uh, how there's shaker fever going on right now because even though people are not interested in a lot of the. Um, OBF, all, all old brown furniture, yeah. shaker objects and furniture appeal because of their simplicity and their, you know, just wonderful architectural structure and their functionality. Um, so uh, for whatever reasons, uh, they're popular. What's interesting about the shakers are they weren't just simple, you know, quiet people. Um, they embraced technology. Uh, they were, um, you know... Uh, 
self economically self-sufficient they had tremendous business savvy uh, they sold uh, washing machines fire engines um, there was a black smithy seeds uh, chairs um, cloaks women's cloaks letter sweaters uh, all kinds of brooms, you know, they ran well, the brooms, gamut. Brooms, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah, well, right. But uh, in fact, um, they were, Brother Arnold had uh, described them, you know, he was a shaker, uh, described themselves as, in, in an interview as the shrewdest Yankees going, the ultimate capitalistic communists. Um, so anyway, fascinated group, fascinating group, uh, with, you know, ideas about clarity, simplicity, equality, sustainability, community, a lot of things are going to resonate and, uh, the, um, sort of architect to the museum world, mm -hmm. the hot, uh, architect at the moment, Annabelle Seldorf is, has designed, um, this new complex which is based around uh, a funky old uh, hotel yeah. in that area so in a few years uh, meanwhile i should say that uh, right now there's actually a, kind of a pop-up uh, show going on in chatham of shaker items that you can go see to tide you over to 2023 all right i mean when you say uh, communist and capitalist I, I think i know what that is and you call it communism or socialism internally they're socialistic but uh, out face, facing outward to the world, they're capitalistic. Uh, in other words, they're marketing their goods to the uh, others, to the other population. Right. right. And, they and know then, how to make a buck. Yeah. But then they share it in a way that uh, socialists can They live in a share. way yeah. that uh, right. shares the money. Yeah. That's not yeah. terribly unusual, right. although it is unusual. But yeah. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to, Captain. Right. I, I think I even have a book of uh, shaker recipes. I don't okay. know what that's like. I don't know if it's... Simple food. I have to look back at that book. Well, and I'm see sure it. it's simple food, aren't you? I mean, I'm sure it's simple food. I mean, whether it's worth eating is something else. I don't know. They were so smart about stuff. I mean, yeah. I, they wouldn't be stupid enough to make uh, unappetizing food. No, but they're not going to go to great lengths to. Well, let's just see. Let's yeah. just All look right. at the we'll book and see. Okay. All right. All and right. if not, I'll just go back to Laurie Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. Yes. How to fix up that shape of food. Um, all right, so there are two articles that kind of fit in the same category. When this happens, you have to really speak to it that way because it's, it's a sign. Uh, one is there was a, um, the obituary of Janet Malcolm, who uh, was a writer largely for The New Yorker for years, very highly respected uh, writer. And um, she wrote about all kinds of things. And uh, she was, as recounts in the obituary, uh, for much of her career, highly, highly controversial. And that is because she was, in her time, considered unbelievably critical of journalists generally. And of course, that's what she was. She was a journalist, but in her view, she had a clear-eyed view of what journalists really do. And uh, of course, she tried to uh, keep that in the back of her mind in her own work. And here's the quote that stands out. Um, she says, human frailty, just a quote from her, human frailty continues to be the currency in which journalism trades. Malice remains its anim excuse me, animating impulse, which is a little bit harsh, you would think. 
but that was her point of view, and uh, her perhaps her best known writing had to do with the uh, controversy that involved the uh, murder that Dr. McDonald was convicted of, uh, and that was uh, some years ago. Joe McGinnis had written uh, uh, a string of articles about it, or ultimately a book about it, and it was a subject of uh, uh, at least two television movies, and it was sort of like a fugitive type scenario, and it was a controversial uh, killing at the time. But she was highly critical of Joe McGinnis, and she said Joe McGinnis basically had written in a way that was too sympathetic of McDonald because he had a contract with McDonald which gave him certain access and compromised his journalistic tendencies. In any event, it's, they, as Times describes, what's very well known about that book is the first sentence, and the first sentence is this. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Uh, so, I mean, we could go into detail about this, and she was a controversial figure, so much so uh, that she's in this article that recounts criticism by Anna Quinlan, who you remember well, right. saying that uh, she compromised, you know, her own, uh, you know, ideals, her own principles in her own writing to some degree. But uh, over time, uh, I think that criticism kind of receded, and she was considered a clear-eyed view uh, of journalism, a very careful writer who uh, really focused on details and the truth, etc. And always, uh, con you know, convinced, I think, of the theme that it's important that the journalists take the journalists' own attitudes and own presence uh, out of the article and not use what the journalist's writing about in a way to promote him or herself, uh, which she thought was uh, a real danger in the profession. Interestingly, uh, there was an article just today in the Sunday Review section by Frank Bruni, and you know Frank Bruni well. So Frank mm -hmm. Bruni was initially a food columnist or a restaurant reviewer. I can't remember. Um, he he was uh, the rest the head uh, restaurant reviewer in the New York Times for a while. Oh yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't remember what else he's done. But. Yeah, well, he did that for a while, uh, and I mean not just one or two years. He was fairly well known for that. And then he became a columnist, an opinion columnist for the Times. He'd been writing an opinion column in the review section and occasionally other days for 10 years. And now he's stepping down from that. And he wrote an article uh, called Ted Cruz That I Do You Wrong. And what the article is about is uh, it, it starts with the sentence, I owe Ted Cruz an apology. And it's an article which is sort of a mea culpa by Frank Bruni of what he could have done better as a columnist over the last 10 years. And usually an article like that is not too interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of a non-apology apology. Right. But this is an apology. Really? And it's uh, kind of stunning. And what he says is that uh, um, opinion writers uh, like himself have contributed to the dynamics we decry, the toxic tenor of American discourse, the furious pitch of American politics, the volume and vitriol of it all. And his point is, and he's pointing the finger at himself, he says, I worry about how frequently we shove ambivalence, excuse me, ambivalence and ambiguity aside. Ambivalence and ambiguity aren't necessarily signs of weakness or sins of indecision. They can be apt responses, but they don't make for bold sentences or tidy talking points. So we pundits are merchants of certitude in a world where much is in doubt and many questions don't have one right answer. Um, and he goes on like this. Again, he's, he's pretty clear about uh, his own failings. He says, I miss nuance. 
what has been, which has been incinerated by today's hot takes. There aren't as many clicks in cooling tempers and complicating people's understanding of situations as there are in stoking their rage. Too many columnists generalize too broadly. Too many columns are less sober analysis than snarky stand-up acts or primal screams. Um, well, I agree with that. Yeah. The, the snarkiness. But on the other hand, yeah. it's not really so interesting when somebody writes something and says, it could be this, it could I, be that. Right, right. I mean, I always say, I don't care... If I, you know, totally disagree with the person, I mean, I, I enjoy that, you know, I say, right. well, well, that's a ridiculous point of view, you know, or if I completely embrace it, but I need them to have an opinion. Well, I need them to have a point of view. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just not that well, interesting. That, look, you've kind of put your finger on it. He so sa- it's awkward. He says, uh, I don't miss the stodginess that defined a lot of news writing, which is exactly what you're talking about. Okay. It reflected an unnatural emotional remove and an insistence on even-handedness that produced a kind of moral zombieism. But I miss nuance, and so that's right. that's the question, and uh, and that's a little bit of what Janet Malcolm's talking about. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not about uh, who you are as a writer. It's not about how you're going to sell your piece. I mean, if you're really do, uh, following the journalist credo, it's just the facts. And being open about what you what you know for a fact and what you don't know for a fact, and the nuance of it all. Um, but I see your point, and there's no question that's what drives mm-hmm. rating and that's what drives clicks. So that's the problem we find ourselves in. That's what drives right. clicks. Well, clicks, you know. I don't know. I know. That's so techie of you, Dave. It is. It is, yeah. it is. All right, let's get to the story people want to hear about. How men's bodies change when they become fathers. Um, um, all ears. Okay. Um, well, the fear is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, There's a widespread uh, and deeply ingrained belief among fathers that because their bodies haven't undergone the myriad biological changes associated with pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding, they're not as biologically and psychologically primed for caretaking as women are. Who are these people who have this concern? I know. know, You were never concerned. (laughs) They are less confident. Will they be good parents? Will they bond? Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so lame. um, Yeah. And uh, first of all, the the woman who's writing this, and she's an anthropologist who studies uh, human fatherhood at the University of Oxford, Anna uh, Machen, and uh, she says, uh, you know, um, the idea that fathers are biologically less prepared is unlikely to be true. Okay. She remembers the, stirp, the steep learning curve of those first days of motherhood. Um, but while biological change, the biological changes fathers undergo are not as well understood or as outwardly dramatic, okay, scientists are beginning to find out that both men and women undergo hormonal and brain changes that herald this key transition in a parent's life, okay? In other words, being a dad is as biological a phenomenon as being a mom, okay? So, (laughs) guess what happens? When you become a father, testosterone dips. Oh, what? 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 You said this on... Testosterone is largely responsible for motivating men to find partners. And studies suggest 
men with higher levels of testosterone tend to be more attractive to potential mates. What you're saying here. But, as you might expect, being a successful father means focusing on family and resisting the drive. But more than that, to lower, seek out another partner. And lower okay? testosterone, making, so, you, making you less attractive. Right. Me. So it helps you resist the I drive. I can't believe you're, you're putting this Men out. Men have evolved, oh, evolved for some of that testosterone to go. You know the worst part of this is you're putting this out on Father's Day. You're kind of ruining everybody's Father's they Day. They did studies. Yeah. Okay, they did a study of 624 single childless men in the Philippines. Oh. Yeah, 600 right? men. That's great. Yeah. 465 of those 624 who became dads during that five-year period experienced a significant drop in testosterone. What? 34%. Than okay. the others. Did, did they say yeah. anything about grandfathers? No, no, no. Because <laughs> I think the grandfathers, the testosterone is up. We found what? that um, if brand new fathers had lower testosterone on the day after their babies were born, yeah. they did more caregiving oh. and baby-related oh. household tasks months later. Oh. Okay. While news of this drop in <clears throat> testosterone is often greeted with groans of resignation there you from go. men, there you go. choose fatherhood and choose the road to emasculation, they think. Yes. Some studies have suggested that the lower a man's testosterone, the more likely he is to release key reward and bonding hormones, mm. oxytocin and dopamine, when interacting with his child. Yeah. Therefore... Yeah. Caring for your child produces not only a strong bond, but a neurochemical reward, yeah. inducing feelings of happiness, contentment, and warmth. Mm. A welcome trade-off. <laughs> what? Okay. So if you can put up with that, you know, diminution of the testosterone, yeah. you can be a good dad and feel good about it. But what about those of us who continue to have increasing testosterone levels? You can overcome it. I you can... guess you weren't a very good dad. Oh. I guess that kind of proves oh, on, the point. Paul right? Contraire. So, but here, the brain also oh, undergoes structural changes. Structural changes, really. To ensure that fathers exhibit the key skills of uh, parenting, and they yeah. talk about a, Dr. Kim, a yeah. neuroscientist at the University of Denver, who found brain changes uh, in men mirrored those previously seen in new moms. Certain areas within the within parts of the brain linked to attachment, nurturing, empathy, and the ability to interpret and react appropriately to a baby's behavior had more gray and white matter between 12 and 16 weeks than they did before um, from uh, between two and four weeks. Right. So the parts of the brain are like increasing, mm. lighting up, mm. going crazy. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, what's interesting is yeah. um, while both new mothers and new fathers show activation in these brain regions linked with empathy and understanding their child's emotional state, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The parts of the brain that light up the most are starting, startlingly, start, startlingly, startlingly, surprisingly, different 
for each parent. Yeah. For moms, yeah. reason, regions closer to the core of the brain, which enable them to care, nurture, and detect risk, yeah. were the most active. But for dads, yeah. the part that shone most brightly were located on the outer surface of the brain where higher, more conscious cognitive functions sit, such as thought, goal orientation, planning, and problem solving. Mm. Okay. Now we're getting warmer. Yeah. Dad's brains have adapted in similar but different ways to ensure they can bond with and care for their babies despite not having given birth to them. Well, there's a light. There's a glimmer of light in that. Because, you know, I think the problem solving abilities have been enhanced by... uh, my fatherhood. I'll, I'll go. I'll go with that. I'll go give you that much. Well, is, does that mean that you're stimulated to like take care of, provi- figure out how to pr- provide for, uh, take care of, who knows, etc. Who knows? But I mean, it, 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 I guess it suggests that the the father and the mother have complementary uh, skills that they're bringing to the table. Okay, one more thing that's kind of fun. Okay, yes. um, and this comes from Dr. Ruth Feldman yes. in Israel. Okay. Mm, yeah, must be uh, published yeah. a study of 112 mothers and fathers in 2010 that which found that peaks in oxytocin yeah. and by association dopamine yeah. occurred for women when they nurtured their children. Yeah. In contrast, the peak for men occurred when they took part in rough and tumble play. Oh, there we go. Because young children's brains seem to mimic the same oxytocin levels as their parents meaning they'll get a similar blast of feel-good oxytocin when playing with dad, being nurtured by mom, they'll be more likely to engage in that behavior over and over again with that That, parent, cementing bonds between father and child, but also um, playing crucial role in the child's social development. All right, so they're more likely to do some rough and tumble with the dad than the mom. And uh, go to the mom. For yeah, but comfort. it's interesting, and that happens, and that lights up the brain. Okay, but apparently it doesn't light up the brain in the rough and tumble with the mom. No, there's no rough and tumble okay. with the mom. That's not new news. But but why is that more uh, useful? I, because, it, because evolutionary. The child, because the child benefits from a variety of experiences, and uh, this way they got them both covered. You want your kid to be a little rough and tumble, even as he or she goes out into the world, and to be comforted by mom when there are setbacks. Okay, so take that. We have some new yeah. fathers in our uh, group. Yes, they'll be up on this. But I, I, I think we both are eager to see the results for grandfathers, uh, which I think you're going to see the testosterone going through the roof uh, when you become a grandfather. Right? You're nodding. All right, so... I mean, you're- you're looking. You're uh, more I'm, eager to find a new partner. I know. Is that your back? No, it's not you're back point. on the no. uh, in the market. No, that's not it. All right, so uh, I think we should stop there. That's the. Uh, <laughs> I think we better. That's it for Tamsin and read the paper. This is Dan Abuhoff and Tamsin Granger. We'll see you again next week. Happy Father's Day. Yes, happy Father's Day.